1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 12, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The death of Eli. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I have fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among your people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. And she did not pay attention, or she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this week we have the conclusion of Eli's story in 1 Samuel. As God's judgment that he had prophesied through Samuel and through the man of God earlier in chapter 2 is carried out. For me, when Christina and I first started talking about having kids, there were two stories of fathers in the Bible that honestly made me hesitant a bit to be a parent. The, the first was a story of Jacob and his sons. Clearly, Joseph has some issues with pride, and his brothers had issues with jealousy. And we see nowhere in Scripture that Jacob really gets involved in his sons in dealing with these issues. In fact, Jacob almost adds fuel to the fire. He gives Jacob this, or Joseph this coat, a colorful coat, a coat of honor, and he adds fuel to the fire, further furthering Joseph's pride and furthering the jealousy of the brothers. Eli, on the other hand, had two sons who were very clearly and very openly living in sin, as we saw in the last couple of chapters. We see in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, that Eli does finally rebuke his sons, but only after the Israelites complain to him about the son's grievous sins. And when he does rebuke, 
It's just empty words without any consequences behind it. Both of these stories have a father who's passive to the sins of their children. A father who's unwilling to rebuke their children, to step up and get involved in the messy aspect of disciplining their children properly, calling them to something higher, something bigger than themselves, something eternal. As a person myself who dislikes conflict and dislikes addressing conflict and goes to lengths to avoid conflict, I feared I would be passive like Jacob or Eli, turning a blind eye to our sin. However, our loving God puts stories like this in the Bible to show us how to, how to do this better, to teach us what not to do. The Bible isn't full of just heroic figures who did great things. It's full of messy people who messed up, and yet God still loves them, and God calls them to himself, and he teaches us how to do it better. And so as Christina and I discussed being coming parents, I kept coming back to these two stories and praying that God would help, help me with this, that I would not be like I, Eli and ignoring the sins of my children. I can't say I do it perfectly. I'm a human still. I still make mistakes. There are definitely times when I'm tired and I hear the kids arguing in the other room, and I can tell that I think to myself, I'm like, oh, they're okay. They can handle it themselves. It'll be all right that desire to be passive and not handle it and not get involved. Or even worse yet, I'm in a hurry. We're late to church. We need to leave it by 845, and I've got a kid who's being very disobedient. How I respond in that situation. Do I respond by taking the time to rebuke my child, to discipline him, to help him understand that there is something bigger here than just listening to mom and dad? Or... Do I say, I'll address it later, and then rush off to church so I can make it on church on time, and then never come back to it? As a parent, we're called to rebuke our children, to step up and get involved in the messy aspect of properly disciplining our kids and calling them to something higher, something bigger than ourselves. We are called as parents to shepherd our children into God's kingdom. When we see or hear our children acting in sin, we must address it and not wait until it's given way to something. Sin has given away to something more, as it did in Eli's case with Hophni and Phinehas. Eli's passivity, though, can in part be due to the fact that he also was living in sin. For us, Eli's life serves as a reminder of what God calls us to, first as a child of God, and second, as a parent. So last week, Nick preached on 1 Samuel, the first half of chapter 4. If you missed the sermon, I recommend you go back online and listen to it. I know I listened to it a couple times this week, listening back on it. And in that sermon, Nick pointed out that the Ark of, Rep the Ark of God represents three things. The Ark of God represents the presence of God. The Ark of God represents the power of God. And the ark of God represents the promise of God. So presence, power, and promise. However, he, he stated very clearly, the ark of God is not God. It represents the power, the promise, and the presence of God, but it was not God. The Israelites wanted to find the power of God, but they were not willing to trust in God's leading. They wanted to do it their own way. 
Instead, the Israelites, as Nick said, boiled God down to a series of superstitions and formulas, and we do this, we do that, but their hearts weren't really seeking God. Their hope was not actually in God. Their hope was in the ark of God. They were buying into the pagan religions around them. So today we picked up with Eli's story, the priest, whose primary concern is the safety and security of the ark. Verse 13 says, Eli is sitting on his seat, watching by the road, and his heart is trembling for the ark of God. Notice here where Eli's hope lies. It's in this man-made ark. Notice where Eli is not. Eli's not back at the tabernacle praying to God for deliverance of the Israelites from the Philistine. He's not back at the tabernacle praying to God, asking for forgiveness of the sins of him and Hophni and Phinehas and the rest of the Israelites. He's not there. He's sitting by the road, worried about the ark. This is where his concern is. The messenger comes from Shiloh, it says, from the battlefield with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. In this day and age, that was a sign of great distress. So immediately, without saying anything, that messenger had already spoken volumes to everybody who was behind in Shiloh. He didn't have to say anything. All would have been known right away that things were not going well. Eli hears the commotion, but doesn't seem to understand the meaning of the commotion. Verse 15 makes it clear why he does not seem to understand the meaning of commotion. It says his eyes were set, though he, so he could not see. So in his old age, Eli had lost his vision. Much like Eli had lost his spiritual focus through the years, his spiritual vision, so to speak, he had now lost his physical vision and was unable to see. The messenger comes up to Eli and explains the situation, stating, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among your people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark has been captured. It is at the mention of the loss of the ark that Eli falls out of his chair, and he dies. As I was reading this passage the last few weeks and studying it, and I'm just kind of taken by the fact that Eli was had his hope so wrapped up in the ark, and at the mention he dies, at the mention of it, he dies. I could not help but to think of our church. If something were to happen to, say, our church building, say a group of people destroyed our building because of the way we believe that a child is sacred and is precious from conception until death, or that we believe that God created us male and female, Male and female, he created us, and marriage is a sacred union between one man and one female until death do us part. If our church were to be no more, and we had to meet out in the parking lot in the middle of a January because a group had destroyed our church, would our church be shaken? Would our church be devastated to the point of hopelessness, as was the case of Eli? I sure hope the answer to this one is no. For me, I think it would in some ways excite me to see that persecution and say we need to stand firm in our faith. What a firm foundation we have. The church building is only a tool to help us fulfill our mission of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is only a tool to enable us 
to disciple others better. It is not the ultimate thing. It is not where our hope should lie. Much like in my toolbox that I almost always carry a chisel. And if that chisel were to be misplaced, were to be broken, there's other tools in my toolbox that would still get the job done. Screwdriver, the back of a hammer. I would not be without something. Eli, though, had clearly placed his hope in the ark, and he had lost sight of God. For him, the loss of the ark signified the loss of the glory of God and the power of God, that God had abandoned his people. It is at this great loss that Eli lost his balance and fell out of his seat. The author mentions that Eli was a heavy man, and for this reason, his injuries are fatal. One can can draw the conclusion that Eli was heavy due to the sin of taking and eating more than his share of the Israelites' sacrifice, as indicated in chapter 2, verse 29. Verse 29 is the Lord speaking through the man of God in his prophecy and his rebuke. And he says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people. Notice here that it was not just Hophni and Phinehas who were partaking in the fattening themselves on the sacrifices. Eli was doing so as well, taking more than his share, and doing so before the fat was burned off. In verse 18, the word seat, as translated by the the ESV, has an Interesting significance. The Hebrew word here, used here, is kise. It refers to a seat of honor or a throne. In the Bible, this word appears 135 times. In the King James Version, the translation of the Bible, the word kise, is translated 127 times as throne, seven times as a seat, and one time as a stool. So one could say, in some ways, that Eli was sitting on a throne. What makes it so significant is that with the act of falling, physically falling out of his seat or physically falling out of his throne, Eli was also being removed by God from his seat of honor as a priest. God was fulfilling what he had proclaimed to Eli through the man of God and again through Samuel. The end of verse 18 is Eli's seven-word obituary. It says, he had judged Israel for 40 years. Now, this is interesting in that this is the first and only time that Eli is referred to as a judge. Eli had been more than a high priest in this statement. Eli had been a leader, exercising leadership similar to that of one of the minor judges. After the death of Eli, the author transitions then to Eli's daughter-in-law. Let's read verses 19 through 22 again. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, when she heard the news that the ark of God was was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. 
And about the time of her death, the woman attending to her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So Eli's daughter-in-law is dying while giving birth to her son. She names him Ichabod. For the kids who want to know what the meaning of Ichabod is, this was ready. Ichabod means where is the glory? So that's what his Ichabod means. Where is the glory? I've always loved the idea of having meaningful names for children and selecting names that are meaningful. You see this throughout the Bible used in both good and bad ways. Think of the naming of Benjamin. As Rachel was dying, she named him Benoni, meaning son of sorrow. Jacob then renames him to Benjamin, meaning son of my right hand. You also have the naming of Hosea's children and his marriage to Gomer, whose names were used to declare prophetic judgment against Israel. Or even the meaning behind Samuel. Hannah named him Samuel, stating, which means God has heard. As she proclaimed, I have asked for him from the Lord. With each of our children, Christina and I tried to select names that had meaning behind it, whether if it was the meaning for what that name actually stood for or for the story in the Bible that was related to, to that name. With our firstborn, he got the name Hezekiah. He's not here with us today because he's sick, unfortunately. Because the meaning of his name was the prayer for him that we had for him at his birth and it remains a prayer for him to this day. When Christina was pregnant with him, she went in for a checkup about 31 weeks along, found out that he was not growing in the womb, and his umbilical cord was only sporadically providing the nutrients he needed to grow. So he was essentially starving to death within the womb. When we found this out, we immediately began praying that God would strengthen our little child. Christina was rushed off to the hospital. We were informed that she needed to give birth very soon, very quickly to save his life. And I remember sitting in the hospital going through names and reading the meaning behind the names that were on our list. Hezekiah was probably in the five or six range. I know it was not even in our top four. But when we got to Hezekiah, I said, the meaning of Hezekiah is Yahweh strengthens. And this is what our prayer was for him at that time. And against what the doctors told us to expect, he came out screaming and crying, not needing oxygen or other forms of medical assistance. God did strengthen that little child. Little did we know at that time that we had been, he had been blessed with an extra chromosome, officially known as trisomy 21, or more commonly known as Down syndrome. And the number one symptom of Downs is low muscle tone. This makes gross motor skills like walking and jumping difficult. This makes fine motor skills like riding and talking difficult and more challenging. And so a consistent prayer of mine is, Lord, please strengthen my child. Poor Ichabod, though. His mother named him. He was orphaned at birth, and his mother gives him a name. Where is the glory? Where is the glory? All his life, his name would have to declare this question through his name. Where is the glory? The author makes it clear that Eli's daughter-in-law also directly associated the ark 
with God's glory, much like Eli and the Israelites did. It is through her belief, it was through her belief that God himself, who is Israel's glory, had left them when the ark was lost. And the loss of the ark made a physical loss of the ark, a physical man-made thing, left her hopeless and devastated. I find it interesting, even there, the nurse attending her bedside said, you have born a son. That should have been for a woman her day and age. That was the ultimate honor, to bear a son, to carry on the name, to carry on an inheritance. And she was so devastated that even that didn't excite her. Fortunately, God's glory is far better than anything man could ever make. God's glory is indescribable and uncontainable. We could spend years in Sunday school class just talking about the glory of God and barely scratch the surface. Psalms 19.1 states, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The beauty of creation is just a small taste of His glory. This is one of the reasons why I love to hike and get out in the open air. I get to spend time in God's creation, see a small taste of his beauty and his creativity. And I'm reminded what a marvelous God we serve. This picture on the screen here, it's just a reminder of just a small taste of his glory and how wonderful he is. And he created all this and his amazing creativity that we can only begin to scratch the surface. Christopher Morgan defines the glory of God as the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections, which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory known to those in his presence. The whole Bible proclaims the glory of God, and as image bearers of the Creator, we too are called to highlight the glory of our Creator. Too often, though, we, can, we like to worship what we see and feel, and we may not even realize we're doing it. It can be in small ways and taking pride. Somebody says, oh, you did a great job with this. And you say, yes, thank you. I, I worked hard to achieve this. Not giving the glory to God who gave you the skill to do that. Our Sunday school series, we've been looking at the different worldviews, and with that, we have seen many ways other religions worship created things and not the creator. Today we looked at Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 16. It reads, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, un and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And it is through his creation that we see his glory, a taste of his glory. And it is not until we get to heaven will we get to really see even more of his glory before us. As Christians, though, we are not immune to worshiping the created things, even worshiping ourselves for, through our accomplishments and our achievements, as opposed to giving glory to the one and only one who deserves it. This is why we need a savior, a redeemer, the beauty of God's glory is that he has provided for our every need, including a redeemer. Matt Chandler stated, 
The work of God in the cross of Christ strikes us as awe-inspiring after we have first been awed by the glory of God. Romans 12.1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. In light of what God has done, the sacrifice that belongs to God is our whole lives. We rob God of his due glory when we do not do this. To glorify God is to not, not to bestow glory on God or to add to his glory, but to recognize and acknowledge his glory. Say that again. I think it bears repeating. To glorify God is not to bestow glory on God or to add to his glory but to recognize and acknowledge his glory. Too often we put our focus on the things of this world like the Israelites did, and we fail to glorify the one true God. When we do this, we are called to repent and reorient our focus to the glorious one, the only one worthy of our praise. As the old hymn goes, which we sang earlier, which I... I love how God orchestrates everything. I didn't look at the order of worship till this morning, and I already had this in my notes. The old hymn writes, To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his Son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. I love this hymn, and I find it so exciting, and I was glad that we got to sing it this morning, because it excites me. Praise the Lord for what he has done. Praise the Lord for his Redeemer. So as we close today, I want to leave you with this thought. What are some ways you are not giving proper glory to God in your lives? What are some ways that you're trying to take the glory for yourself? Is there an area in your life that you need to give, that you're giving glory to the creation or giving glory to yourself and not to the creator? What are some ways we are not giving proper glory to God in our lives? Let us close, our, close in prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion. Lord Jesus, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Forgive us when we lose sight of this. When our vision is nearsighted, focusing on ourselves and not on you, we thank you for, the, for coming to this earth in the form of a baby, living a perfect life and yielding it as an atonement for our sin. Lord, we praise you. Let us rejoice, Lord. We praise you for you are the only one worthy of praise. And it is in your marvelous name we pray. Amen.